Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Everyone, nice to see people here tonight. Last week I started uh, the topic of this bodhisattva, bodhisattva motivation, which means awakening for the benefit of all beings. Another term that's used sometimes is bodhicitta, the awakened heart. Bodhi means awaken, like Buddha comes from the same root, the one who's awake. So bodhi and citta is the heart or mind. From the awakened heart. And I talked about, last week I talked about that this motivation, I mean for us, this hearing this motivation to live for the benefit of all beings, it just feels beautiful, that thought that there's somebody who'd be willing to live their life for the benefit of everyone. But uh, what we're trying to understand is not only is that a beautiful motivation, but it's actually practical and skillful. So it, and, and I think we could even say necessary, that as long as we're operating from our self-centered point of view, even though that can be beautiful too, you know, to live my life, take care of myself, put together a really beautiful life for myself, to find a really good partner for myself, learn how to take care of this body given my particular genetic predispositions and you know how can I take care of this body in a beautiful way create a, a beautiful home for myself group of friends but as you know and from a relative point of view as beautiful as that is it's always going to be limited and this is just something to experiment with to uh, see that the self-orientation always has problems. It always puts us in this position of competition. Like my desire for sort of a stable home, good friends, bumps up against other people's desire. He wants this person for his best friend. I want that person for my best friend. And you see, there's problems. I mentioned not too long ago, I think in the Wednesday night group, this line from Ajahn Jayasaro, this British monk. He said, uh, when we feel like there's a, a distinction between somebody else's well-being and our well-being, it means we don't understand what well-being is. And that's really what we're trying to understand here is that caring about ourselves has to include caring about everybody else. Otherwise, we're actually not fully caring for ourselves. When we're caring for ourselves with the or at the exclusion of others, we're not really taking care of ourselves because that attitude is promoting a sense of separation, of being apart which is not a very good way to take care of ourselves. If our, the best way we can imagine taking care of ourselves uh, is all about reinforcing the notion of separation, 
Well, that's, we're not we're not creating. We're not putting together a beautiful life for ourselves. We're actually creating a prison for ourselves. The more we're living out of this self-centered orientation, the more we're creating a prison. We're oppressing ourselves. So the basic question we're asking, you know, given that we live in this world as it actually is, all of the uncertainty, all of the uncertainty because things are interdependent, because we don't pull all the strings, we're not in control of everything. So this is what we mean by uncertainty or vulnerability. So we're, this is the world that we live in. What do we do about that? What is the appropriate attitude, the appropriate way of being or relating that actually leads to peace and leads to freedom, leads to those beautiful qualities of wisdom and compassion? And we'll just find, you know, just through experimentation that even when we're doing so-called good things for ourselves, but if our attitude is restricted to, you know, living, practicing for our own well-being, we'll find that our happiness is undermined. And at the same time, if we live our lives for the benefit of others but exclude ourselves, we'll also find that our happiness is limited, is undermined by that. You know, we see this. We see, it's easier to see in other people than it is in ourselves, but we see people who are self-absorbed and we can intuit their suffering, the, the limitations of their happiness. And we see other people who are fully absorbed in taking care of other people and excluding their own well-being. Somehow they don't get included in the circle. And they're also not happy. They undermine their happiness. And you see, it really comes out of this, this basic insight that arises the more we pay attention in life, which is uh, any attitude or any view of mind that involves separation, like breaking things apart, good, bad, you, me. Any of that fragmentation or that breaking things apart, separating things apart, ultimately won't lead to happiness. So we need to cultivate a view that brings us, brings the mind, supports the mind going beyond that. And that's where this particular motivation comes in. This is why it's a practice. You know, to, we practice having the motivation to live for the benefit of all beings, which includes ourselves. So we, we actually cultivate a sense of concern, care, responsibility, sensitivity to all things. Right? That's, you see how this connects with our basic sitting practice. Because when we're sitting, with our eyes open, with our eyes closed, you know, as I described in the instruction set, we're sort of practicing sitting right in the middle of everything. So, of course, initially we're right in the middle of what it feels like to have this body right now, what it's like to have this mind right now. But it's pretty easy to go beyond that and realize, but I'm also sitting in the middle of this world, this whirlwind, this, all these different patterns 
of interactions that I have today and I'm having right now just being in a room with a bunch of other people or just being on this planet with a bunch of other living beings. That's what we're sitting in the middle of. So when we're meditating, you know, sitting there and cultivating this profound, beautiful sensitivity to the way it is, the way it is includes everything, right? Inner and outer. And even the idea of inner and outer breaks down. Like, like when, when you actually open to the present moment, is there a distinction between inner and outer? You know, when we open to the present moment, and you can just do it right now as I'm talking. So we just sort of, you don't need a particular posture. You don't need to close your eyes. You know, just open to how it is now. And you'll see that before your mind uh, gets involved, the thinking mind gets involved, when we open to the present moment, it's just this. It isn't like two things or three things or a hundred things. It's just this. There's a unity for the present moment. Do you see what I mean by that? It's just this. Now, our minds, the discriminating mind, can analyze this and say, I like this, but I don't like that pain in my knee. You know? So we can evaluate, we can discriminate, we can break it apart. But that's not actually the sort of intuitive relationship with the present moment. Intuitively, we understand it's just this. And then can we care about this? So how can we care about this, which we naturally do? That, that quality of caring about this, the present moment, this moment, that's natural. And it includes everything. Like if it's an actual moment of connecting or opening, an actual moment of mindfulness, it already includes everything because the mind has to work to exclude something. So if the mind isn't doing that work of excluding, okay, I'm open to this, but not those people over there that I don't trust, you know, that look different or have a different philosophical or religious orientation or, you know, whatever, however we might like open to all humans, but mosquitoes and other creatures that crawl around. No. See, that's, the mind has to do that separation thing. It has to create, you know, who's inside and who's outside. But before the mind does that, that doesn't exist. It's just this. And the more sensitive, the more we've developed the sensitivity, like to really understand and feel what this is, the more we, we realize that the beauty of the wisdom and compassion, it's really understanding the heart that can include everything, that doesn't need to exclude anything, that can feel everything. Can we, can the heart be touched by the immensity of the beauty and the immensity of the pain and suffering in our own lives? and in the world around us. So this motivation is really not different, this motivation to live and practice for the benefit of all. It's not like some, you know, nice thought, but it's really central to the freedom that the Buddha pointed to. 
it's, remember the, the freedom the Buddha pointed to was the absence of greed, anger, and delusion. That's his definition of nirvana or nibbana. It is the action of this, the absence of this pattern of the mind that separates, that chooses, that makes things into good and bad. It's the mind that doesn't exclude. It's the cessation of, of all of those mental patterns that distinguish. One of his synonyms of nibbana is non-diversity or something like that. I'm not sure what the Pali word is. But the mind that isn't excluding, isn't putting things into categories. Now, practically speaking, it's fine to put things into categories. You go downstairs in our workshop after our two-year renovation of this building, we have so many different boxes with different kinds of nails and screws and and one of our community members, Danny, some of you know, separated all of those out. And it's really pragmatic. I mean, it's practical to do that. So we know if we need this kind of screw or this kind of nail, they're all in one place. And it's also, you know, functional for us as human beings to have a sense. Well, this person is really generous. This person has some problems, you know. This dog I can pet. This dog I need to keep my distance from. So it's, it's not like we have to lose that basic functional intelligence that distinguishes, that understands the diversity of experience. I can eat this food, but when I eat that kind of food, I get gas. Or, you know, this is a safe place to be. That other neighborhood, you know, there are a lot of crimes that are committed there. I'm not going to go there at night. You know, all of our prejudices, they're, they're all based on a, you know, one experience. So the problem with this pattern of the mind is that we generalize. Like if we get burnt in life, something bad happens to us, and we overgeneralize, we can think life is bad. So this understanding of inclusivity, it's just, uh, it's just this understanding that the, this part of the mind that discriminates it's just meant to, to sort of help in very specific ways. It isn't a philosophy of life. Like if I finally get you all organized, and all my experiences organized into good and bad, safe and unsafe, then I'll, I'll really have it together and I'll be happy. And just look at something like food, our relationship with food. You know, we put so much energy into getting the right food that we like, that we think is good for us. I mean, it's, I mean, we're completely obsessed, obsessed most of us. Well, I am. <laughs> I mean, we, I spend a lot of time around this, but it's so clear to me that it hasn't affected my happiness. You know, like, all that work hasn't made me more happy. But still, you know, it's okay to put some energy into, well, I should eat this, how much should I eat, no, I'm not going to eat that, well, that's too expensive, I support this. It's okay to put a little energy, but to somehow think that it's uh, an important factor of ultimate happiness, what we eat, how much we eat, when we eat, it's really missing the point. In fact, this is true not just with 
something as important as food, but it's important. It's true with all of these things that were involved in discriminating around. Because, of course, you know, in, in the Buddhist tradition, the Buddha is pointing to a happiness that's unconditioned. So it's not about getting all the ducks in a row, everything organized in our lives, then we can be happy. So this motivation of living and practicing for the benefit of all beings, it's really helping us move beyond that self-centered orientation of wanting to organize our lives so we have all the clothes that we could ever need, and then we can, oh. Of course, we still have to clean them, we have to iron them, they wear out. So it's just, we don't get security by getting our food together, our clothes together, our house together, our partner together, our friends together, our body together. We have to deal with all this stuff, but it isn't going to lead to happiness. And see, this is the mistake we make, is we think this part of the mind that can organize things and um, discriminate and know what's pleasant and know what's unpleasant, we, we assume that if I kind of get hyperactive here, I'll find true happiness freedom, wisdom, and compassion. I'll feel like I really belong. But it just makes us neurotic if we put too much emphasis on all that stuff. So you see that now it begins to make sense. Well, why do we want to practice, live and practice for the benefit of all? Is it gives us a whole other orientation. It's like if we um, develop that motivation, then it is seen as the path of happiness. Giving our life away for the benefit of all, the reason it liberates us is it takes us away from this neurotic pursuit of getting all our ducks in a row. So we still get our ducks in a row, but we have to see that work now as, a, as somehow part of taking care of all beings. So when you wash your clothes, when you feed your body, when you plant your garden, when you clip your nails, when you call your friend, when you pick up trash, like all of this is done for the benefit of all beings. And it's really true. It's not like, uh, you know, this is a thing, we live in such a fluid world that we can tell ourselves any story we want. Why not tell ourselves a story? Why not use a story that's liberating? I mean, for example, I could start telling myself a story that you're all out to get me. And if I really worked on it, I'd start to feel really paranoid. Why are you looking at me? <laughs> or how about something even more simple, like what are you thinking about me right now? You know, we can get really weird very quickly when we wonder, in person, what do people think about me right now? Like, one thought I had, like, maybe you're wondering, why are my clothes so ironed? Or, I mean, so wrinkled. <laughs> it occurred to me earlier today, like, can I wear this? And, you know, if the mind obsesses about that, or even silly things, like when your hair starts to go over your ears, you know, if you have short hair, and you know, it's like you can get obsessed about these little things. What do people think about that? 
I haven't washed my hair in two days. What do they think? Or what do I think? Or I'm not that prepared, you know? So all of these uh, pieces of our lives, it's very easy to construct a story. And then as we sort of get identified with the story, we get in a very narrow, tight place. But we could start telling ourselves another story. We could keep telling ourselves a story that I care about everybody. Everybody I see, including myself, is a living being, a sensitive living being, sensitive to pain, sensitive to joy. Everybody is very similar to me in wanting to be happy and wanting to be free. I can't help but care about all beings. I care about everything. I care about the trash on the ground. I care about the weather and its effect on living creatures. We don't have to make this up. I mean, any more than we have to make up anything, any story that we tell ourselves. You know, it's not, that story is not any more fantastical than, you know, what do you think about me? Right? So all of these neurotic stories seem so appropriate for us to obsess on. But how about the story that I care about everybody and I want to take care of everybody. I don't know how to do that, but I know that I want to. I want this world to be a better place. I want people to have happy lives. I want people to be wise and kind because it's good for everybody to be wise and kind. It's good for all of us together to be wise and kind. And I know it's always going to be messy, but if it's going to be messy, this world, the best thing for us all to do is to be wise and kind together in the messiness. You know, in the messiness of needing to eat, in the messiness of having a lot of uh, sexual desires. You know, that, that makes things really messy. You know, and this uh, other part of sort of being social creatures of, of ranking, like how much power, prestige, you know, how do we fit in? Are we important? Are we unimportant? How we feel about that? See, these things are just, in a way, hardwired. So that's the messiness. And we're all in this messiness, which is why one of the reasons we care about each other. This is from Trungpa Rinpoche, a controversial Tibetan teacher, but also seemingly a brilliant teacher and uh, he says, when you awaken your heart, you find to your surprise that your heart is empty. You find that you're looking into outer space. What are you? Who are you? Where's your heart? If you really look, you won't find anything tangible or solid. If you search for the awakened heart, if you put your hand through your rib cage and feel for it, there is nothing there but tenderness. You feel sore and soft. And if you open your eyes to the rest of the world, you feel tremendous sadness. This sadness doesn't come from being mistreated. You don't feel sad because someone has insulted you or because you feel impoverished. Rather, this experience of sadness is unconditioned. It occurs because your heart is completely open, exposed. It is the pure, raw heart. Even if a mosquito lands in it, you feel so touched. It is this tender heart of a warrior that has the power to heal the world. 
So although our lives together are messy, it's messy being a human being, having a body to care for, having a mind, you know, all the conditioning that's been sort of um, received from our culture, from our upbringing, it's challenging. This is challenging. And it's all interdependent. Like we can't make it not messy. We don't, no one's in control to sort of clean it all up and make it somehow completely pure. But there is a way, of, you know, according to people like the Buddha, there is a way to be free in the messiness. Now our normal, uh, sort of the ordinary approach to the messiness is to get angry and try to fix it, try to clean it up, or to give up and to choose a life of distraction, just getting by, just staying entertained and not worrying about the messiness, trying not to be too concerned about the messiness. Neither of those strategies really work very well. And so the other strategy is to, to realize a freedom in the midst of the messiness. And not only a freedom in the midst of the messiness, but a freedom that arises because the heart is opening to the messiness. So this is the path of the bodhisattva. Or just more generally, this is the awakening of the heart. The way the heart awakens, the way we practice, if you're interested in this path, is we cultivate mindfulness precisely in order to open to the messiness. We're cultivating a more profound sensitivity, a steadiness of heart and mind, a clarity of heart and mind, a fearlessness of heart and mind to open to everything because it transforms our lives. Because when the heart is completely open and undefended, it's also completely free and happy. We think we have to defend ourselves in order to be happy. I just don't want to know about what's going on in that country that's imploding, where there's oppression, because it disturbs my happiness. I just don't want to know about it. Or any other number of things we prefer not to know about. Like even when our friends have bad diseases or colds. It's like we don't want to know about it. Or if we don't have a choice and we have to know about it, we just want to sort of, well, they deserve it because they weren't taking care of themselves. Or, you know, it's the government's fault because they allow all the toxicity in the environment and now people are getting sick. We, we want to somehow create someone to blame to prevent the heart from just being right there in the messiness of it all. Like, I really care about you, and there's nothing more I can do in this moment but just to be with you, just to be intimate with your own confusion and, uh, and just the suffering of not knowing what to do, let alone the actual physical pain that might be there at that time. But by doing that, by going that other way towards opening, towards caring, we're realizing the heart that's unafraid of the messiness. A heart that the stability, the clarity, doesn't depend on things being really nice and clean. I mean, it's relatively easy to be kind when everything's going for us, and generous, and steady. But can we be kind, and generous, and steady, clear, 
when it's really messy in our life. It's like that. one of the jokes in the tradition is when you think your practice is going well, go home and visit your mother. <laughs> or you could say, you know, go do something really challenging. You know, fall in love, for example. It can be, for some people, at some time, really challenging. Or have children, you know. Or take on responsibility. Get involved in one of these intractable situations in the world, you know, like inequity, poverty, and try to do something about it. You know, try to mentor young people growing up in this environment and make their lives a little better. You know, figure out how to, how to, you know, make young people interested in what you have to say or do. <laughs> These are challenging situations. So, and they, it's like getting involved is, is just the gross form of what we do in meditation, which is opening wide and being undefended. So like when we fall in love, that's what we're doing. I mean, that's what falling in love should be. It's like we're really opening to this other person. We don't know what's going to happen. We don't know what the relationship is like. If we do, we've already closed down. Like if we got an idea of who we are together or what's going to be happening with us, you know, it's not, it's not real love. It's something else. It's like, you know, I'm, I've got my idea, so try to conform to it if you would. <laughs> You know, and of course the other person has their idea, and sometimes they might meet, and it's just a question if, you know, they can sort of coexist without disturbing each other's delusion enough. <laughs> so this is the whole path, is using life and the messiness and the beauty of life and giving ourselves to that, opening to it and realizing how freeing, how transforming that is. And this is done in very ordinary ways, like just opening the boredom, opening to physical pain when we're sitting, opening to that movement of thought that never seems to stop, worrying, planning, remembering, wondering, fantasizing, comparing, judging, and it's on and on, and just opening where well, that's just that river of thinking moving, doing what it does. That's what the mind does or the brain does. It just thinks. There's, there has to be a problem with that. Can that be included too? All the trivial thoughts, can they be in included? All the rageful thoughts, can they be included? All the beautiful thoughts, can they be included? So just, you know, it's a basic question we can ask yourself. And you could use this phrase in your life. Just bring it up. Um, in different moments of your life. Is this heart going to be uh, enlivened by this moment, by the messiness of this moment, the confusion of this moment, the beauty of this moment? Will this moment be enlivening or will this moment be deadening? And, you know, wouldn't it be appropriate to find a way for whatever moment we're having in our life to is for it to be a cause to be enlivened, to be awakened. Right? I mean, wouldn't that be nice if every moment of our lives was enlivening? So what's actually in the way of being enlivened by life, by any given moment of life? 
you know what we know what's deadening, right? What's deadening is when we're having a moment and we don't want it to be this way. <laughs> I mean, when you say it that way, it's so obvious, like, well of course that's deadening. It's like it is this way, but my mind, my heart is saying, No, this is not what I expected, this is not what I want. So what do we we cut ourselves off because it's not what we want? Well, of course that would be deadening. It's oppressive to disconnect from the only thing there is, which is this moment. So it makes sense then the opposite would be quite enlivening, to be radically accepting, interested, not just accepting, but actually interested. And not just interested, but willing to respond, like to really receive the moment and then to respond in some appropriate way, to give ourselves to the moment, to show up, even though we know we don't know what we should do. Like, I don't really know what I should say to you now, but yet, you know, as best I can, I'm up here saying something. And then we're doing this all the time <laughs> with our friends. You know, it's like they come to us with their joys and sorrows. We don't know really what to say, but we can just like really receive and then just respond, even though we don't know how to respond. We can have that humility, like, I don't know what to do, but I'm going to do something. And I'll pay attention and see whether that something is beneficial or not. And I'll learn from that. So the next time, I don't know what to do, and I'll do something, it will be informed by what I've learned before, over and over again. Dalai Lama had some very provocative words about how, uh, you know, how important it is for us to break the cycle, uh, to basically recognize the limitations of our self-centered attitudes, which are so pervasive in our minds. He, he refers to them as self-cherishing attitudes. And this is from his book, The Way to Freedom, one of his earlier books. He said, therefore, we should decide from now on, I shall dedicate myself, even my body, for the welfare of others. From now on, I will not work for my own happiness, but rather for the happiness of others. From now on, others are like my masters. My body will obey and take orders from others instead of myself. Reflecting upon the great disadvantages and harms of the selfish attitude, you should develop a strong determination, saying to the self-cherishing attitude, your domination of my mind is a thing of the past. From now on, I will not obey your orders. You have only done me great harm by your devious means. From now on, do not pretend that you are working for my own happiness, because I have realized that you are the great enemy and the source of all my frustrations and sufferings. If I do not abandon you and work for others, you will again plunge me into the sufferings of unfortunate rebirth. Understand that a self-centered attitude is the source of all suffering and, con and concern for others is the source of all happiness and goodness. Now, you know, the obvious question will be, well, why, given that, would I choose to put aside 45 minutes or an hour or whatever to meditate every day? People often say this to me, they say, just seems so self-centered. There's so much that needs doing, 
it seems so self-centered to go someplace quiet and sit, or you know, like even more for people who go on retreats and spend a weekend or nine days or three months and just practicing all alone or maybe even community but not really interacting. And then there's this thought that when when the eyes are closed or when the body is still, that somehow someone is just um, self-absorbed, basically. <coughs> but the things that we learn in the you know relative quiet moments of our life, we're really learning how to open to everything. It's just baby steps. If we could move into the world completely, we should. But often what we learn when we move into the world completely and we become a parent, or we become a, somebody interested in taking care of the community, we find that we get really beaten up. And we find also that patterns arise like rage and judgment and fear, like really toxic uh, pattern arise, and it's very clear to us this isn't helping. You know, to sit and stew with real hatred, real sarcasm uh, for our leaders, you know, who are doing whatever they're doing with our tax money. <laughs> they may be doing things that are really unskillful. But sitting and hating them is also really unskillful. What good is that doing? We're just cultivating hate. We're just cultivating judgment. That's what they're doing, probably. You know? Well, they don't deserve it. You know, this is a dog-eat-dog -dog world. I get whatever I can get away with. Or whatever. You know, whatever attitude to sort of stereotypical bad politician has or bad corporate leader has. We have those same attitudes. They just have more power. So their attitudes have more implications for the rest of us. But if we want to change things, it makes sense that you know we have to transform our hearts. We have to develop that willingness to be open and to respond not with rage, not with greed, but with love and intelligence, wisdom, sensitivity. So I'll leave it here. I'll just end with this quote. Some of you know Ram Das, a uh, famous early teacher of Eastern perspectives on the mind and heart, and a former psychology professor at Harvard, and then did some research on LSD and, and got fired. <laughs> and then went to India, kind of the classic trip, and uh, met a man, Neem Karoli Baba, great Indian saint. And uh, uh, one of the times he left him and came back to the States, uh, probably the late 60s, his teacher said to him, I'm as close to you as you are to me. And that's a, that's a really powerful teaching, I'm as close to you as you are to me. Because it means like whatever is of real value, whether you want to call it God or wisdom or truth or the way it is, Buddhism, you know, we might call it Dhamma or Dharma, the way it is. But 
our job is to be close. So not to expect somebody, something to save us, but to be close to the way that it is, because it's transforming. Oh, open it up. We have 15 minutes. Be nice to hear people's experience and any questions. Yeah, say your name, please. Okay. So, uh, at the beginning, you were talking about we can tell ourselves this story, and this story is particularly useful, you know, if you want to experience more freedom. Mm -hmm. So, say there's someone who is particularly unskillful. But somehow they manage to tell themselves this story consistently. What is it that's actually changing them? Or how will that change her? Yeah. Well, you need two things. You need that motivation, and you need a practice. Without the practice, the motivation can be used for anything. Like I think I mentioned maybe last week, invading countries. A lot of times, like when you read what the leaders are saying when they do really terrible things is, I did it because I care. You know, I did it because it was the best thing to do. But you look and you go, well, that didn't, you know, how could you think that? But it's because they have the attitude, like I want to take care of everybody, but they have no wisdom. Now, where does wisdom come from? It comes from this practice of paying attention. So we want two things. We want to cultivate that motivation, that view right, of including. But we have to also cultivate the capacity to be sensitive, to be mindful, to be present, to see things as they are, to see clearly. You need both. Because there are a lot of people who have a, a superficial motivation to care, but they drive us crazy. And they're just like nobody wants to be around them because they're not actually sensitive to what's going on. They're not getting feedback. So how they respond, what they do, what they say, has nothing to do with what's on the ground in front of them. It's just all in their mind, their concepts about things. So they're taking care of people based on however their mind got conditioned, which may be really weird or terrible even. You know, like you can think of deranged mothers or fathers who do terrible things to their children thinking they're caring for them. But because they're, they're insane or their mind has gotten badly distorted, you know, they don't know. And they're not sort of connected enough to change. So this is the thing. It doesn't matter how crazy we are, like what kind of upbringing we have. As long as we have the proper motivation and a way of being connected and getting feedback, like present, sensitive, things will go in the right direction. You know, there'll be a lot of twists and turns, but we'll go in the right direction towards freedom and towards being uh, a positive force in the world. So both this inner transformation and a cause for good in the world. We need two things. We need the proper motivation and we need a basic practice of connecting, opening, yeah, James. Um, one of the two parts of the figures earlier. Um, early on, you said it can get burned, and that can sort of um, help you cast a shadow that might be make it quite as bad or that. Right? Mm -hmm. It's where you feel such a heavy weight. Um, when I 
think, I, I don't seem to get right. You can't think back and point where it's triggered by one thing. Usually for me it's like, um, you know, you're talking about world leaders, but if you go broader into the system, um, it creates the food we need for just an economic system in general. You know, you don't have to sit around and do very hop on the internet, click on any news page, and you have a million different things to trigger you into the, the you know, as many as you can think the functions of society that cause suffering. And um, so I guess that's sort of the first part, working with that constant weight for that mass. It's very real. Um, and then the second part is, you know, from it, you can, I, I, I can't say it's irrational to, unless you have some training like this, uh, to not want to run, you know, to go full full life, or to, you were joking about it about two or three classes ago, so it's really funny at this. Yeah. At some point, there's, it's so natural to try to build a life outside of it, if, if that's even possible anymore. Yeah. Yeah, so there's, there's two things that have to work hand in hand. One is the sensitivity, like how much we're letting in. And it has to work in conjunction with the deepening of our view or the wide view. Because if we just have sensitivity without the right motivation and the right view, it doesn't work. We do want to run, whether it's run into seclusion or just run into distraction. You know, that's why there's so much distraction, because it's our equivalent of running away to a cave. You know, that's just not a cultural value. So, but instead, you know, we read books, or we watch movies, or we have endless conversations that aren't really about anything that kind of keep us from the pain of this sensitivity. So the sensitivity needs to be in balance with the wisdom. Now, if you've got a lot of sensitivity, then emphasize developing the wisdom. If you have a lot of wisdom, like I said earlier, then go home and see your mom or go read the news because that will test your wisdom. Get involved. Take on responsibility. Try to do some good if you feel like you have a lot of wisdom because then that will, show, that will help purify your wisdom. It has to be tested through engagement with life. And even monks and nuns, you know, who are supposedly in that more retreated place, you know, after, you know, when things develop, they're made to be the abbots, you know, and there's probably very few things that are more frustrating than being an abbot of a monastery because when a, people are doing a lot of practice, they have a lot of energy and they become really, it's like it's very easy to get neurotic with all that juice going around. So, they're intense places to be. It's not, you know, we think, tend to idealistically think, you know, being in a monastery would be great. But there's a lot of rubbing and scrubbing in those places, you know, and they're like family dynamics all getting acted out. And there's no distractions. So that's why it's just like a pressure cooker. And then to be in charge of it would be like a nightmare. And everyone coming to you for problems and, you know, all these things. So. There's no escaping it. 
But what we can do is just be aware of these two pieces. So if you're already overwhelmed, like you have too much sensitivity to how messy the world is and not enough wisdom, then it makes a lot of sense, well, why read more news? It's not like we're saying that being connected with what's going on in the world is bad. We're saying, I already know. And when I hear more, I just react in, in ways that aren't skillful. So I'm going to start weaning myself and having more sort of uh, a little bit more distance from the mess in order to develop wisdom with the mess that I can't have distance from. You know, so when we sit, it comes to a nice place like common ground to have a sit, let's say on some morning, Thursday morning, 7 to 9, <laughs> for any half an hour slot of that. And you come, let's say, at 8 o'clock, and you're sitting for half an hour here at the center, and it's nice, or people immediately, even if though you don't know them, you just feel like, hey, they're trustworthy people, so it's really good to be here, the room's nice, temperature, quiet, relatively quiet here in the city. It just feels really nice. The vibe of the room is really nice. But still, the messiness isn't gone. There's just the messiness of having a body that's never quite comfortable, a mind that's either too sleepy or too restless. It's all right here. Greed, aversion, delusion, it's all right here. So we can practice sort of being wise with that messiness, as opposed to reading about what's going on in Syria. We can be wise with our own neurotic pattern and, and bring some, like, a more full expression of wisdom, like, oh, this movement of the mind is just nature. It's not personal. I don't need to take this memory that's arising in my mind personally. It's just memory arising. It's just thinking. It's just the movement of grief or the movement of restlessness or the feeling of boredom. And we just see all of the movement of the body and mind as the movement of nature. And on the one hand, we're allowing the heart to be touched by it because we're fully present and intimate and undefended. But on the other hand, wisdom is giving the mind resilience with that sensitivity. That's what wisdom does. It brings equanimity. So we have two things. We have the connection, the profound intimacy, engagement, and we have equanimity. Equanimity is considered a quality of love. Isn't that interesting in Buddhism? Because we normally think of equanimity as being sort of indifferent, but that's what the Buddha would call the near enemy of equanimity. Because it looks like equanimity, but it's actually the opposite, being indifferent. Equanimity is about being fully connected, intimate, undefended, but because of wisdom, the heart can be steady with the messiness. But we have to start where it's easy and really get the confidence. So when we have too much sensitivity, and a lot of people who come to the practice are naturally really sensitive, and they really need to develop the wisdom. Wisdom is developed by reflecting, by uh, trying out the different view, memorizing the Buddha's view. It's all nature happening, all causes and conditions happening. It, it isn't personal. So we practice memorizing that so we can remember it, and then we project it out. We use it as a concept and see, does this view align with experience? So to remember the teaching is how we cultivate right view. We remember the teachings, and then we take it for a ride. We bring it up in daily life, 
and we basically view life from that perspective instead of our ordinary view, which is it's all about me and what I need and what I'm afraid of and what will make life better for me. Other topics? Yeah, Louis. Um, let's see. I, I, I think my practice is getting to approach seven years. And um, what I'm becoming aware of lately is that um, I've, been, I've been having some, I've had an experience that made me feel like I've lost ground, like I've gone back maybe four years. And it, it, I'm more aware of my thoughts. I'm also aware of how much I judge myself and beat up on myself and, you know, from head to toe, inside, outside. But I've been working for a good number of years around uh, mediation. And I was asked to mediate something between two women in the uh, Native American community. And because of something that happened in there, it just really threw me to this place of feeling despair and making me feel like, I think I want to retreat to the country and let it all go by. Um, but I'm wondering if sometimes, you know, you're talking about sensitivity, if because I'm so sensitive and judgmental, um, I don't know, it's been really hard, and I'm trying to give myself some permission to, like, let go and just be with what happened and not uh, sort of feed yeah, but but just to like remember, retreating isn't necessarily bad. It's really necessary sometimes because when the sensitivity is well ahead of our capacity to understand what we're seeing, we will we will get beaten up in a, in a not good way. So the instinct should be to retreat to the country, as you said, to get some distance. Like uh, this work needs to be done. This mediation needs to be done. There are problems that need to be addressed, but I can't do it now. That's wisdom. To know that we can't show up is wisdom. To keep showing up when we can't show up isn't wisdom. It's, it's a neurotic thing that I have to do this work. Like we don't trust nature to take care of itself. We feel I personally have to save nature. And that's a self-centered view. You know, we think it's a good view, like that we should be responsible for everything. But what saves everything isn't a somebody who feels responsible. What saves ev uh, everything is when somebody realizes it's all nature. It's all interdependent. And then the ebb and flow of entering and getting involved and retreating, that's also a movement of nature. So why not just trust the instincts? Oh, I need to back off a little. It may mean you actually go to the country. It may mean you postpone the next meeting for three weeks. You know, so it could have, there's you know, 
you, like how you handle it, of course, you have to be creative and experiment. But, but it's appropriate when, when the mind is caught, when the mind, when it feels that pain, when it opens that pain, if it goes to a dark place or a heavy place, you know, we're, we're not good for anybody. Because basically, what, no matter what we say, what we're really feeling and what's really going to come out is, your suffering scares me, you know. And uh, that doesn't help them resolve the, their pain. Because it's basically telling them, oh, you're in really tough shape. I don't think you're going to get out of it. Now, that may be true, but from a Buddhist point of view, there's no end. You know, maybe they'll get out of it this lifetime, but whatever is in the mind stream just continues until it gets worked out. I mean, there's no end until there's an end. And so this is our motivation to take a vast view. So when we can do some good work, we do it. When we can't, we retreat to a place where we can do good work. Because it's all about cultivating a way of being that allows for freedom. And we just have to keep backing up until we're in that place, if we can. Sometimes we just get cornered, like when you're in poverty, you know, like there's no going out to the country. You know, you're, we're stuck or you're, you have cancer, you know, there's not anything you can do but just go forward. Um, so then we just do the best we can, you know, and, and sometimes we might have some real wisdom and a lot of times we might be just really rageful about having cancer or being in poverty or whatever it might be that we're afflicted with. Thanks for bringing that up, Louis. It's important. We have to leave it here. So we'll just take a couple breaths together. Let's go of the word. And noticing the heart touched by life as it is. And the wisdom that can say yes. This is how it is now. Feeling that tender heart that can be moved by life. And may our lives, our practices be the cause for peace. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.